Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we explore the Chronicles of Riddick. Okay, I am Sebastian, and I am here with Chris. Hello. And welcoming back to the podcast, Steve Say. Steve, how are you doing? Great. It's uh, good to be back. Thanks, Sebastian. No problem. Are you ready to talk some Riddick? Absolutely. I'm trying to get my voice even lower. (laughs) You ready to talk some Riddick? Yeah, so in case you haven't guessed, tonight we're doing The Chronicles of Riddick. The big budget sequel to Pitch Black, a much lower budget movie that introduced the Riddick character as played by Vin Diesel. Now, I am a fan of Vin Diesel and I am a fan of the character of Richard B. Riddick. Dick B. Riddick. Dick B. Riddick. Yeah, right? It's true. I really enjoy this character. These are the kind of characters I tend to gravitate towards, these sort of anti-hero characters. I love sci-fi heroes, and I really like sci-fi when you throw in a dash of fantasy. So this movie really appeals to me. Now, Chris, what is your history with the Riddick franchise? Well, I missed Pitch Black in the theater, but I caught up with it um on DVD or home video, like as soon as it came out and was a huge fan. I think, I think it was a really well-made low budget sci-fi film that, you know, used its budget to its advantage, you know, and it was a really tight story. I thought they had cool aliens and, you know, they had a cool design. They, it was an update to the Xenomorph and it was my introduction to Vin Diesel. And I thought he would charisma to spare he was really great and the entire cast of that movie really sort of knocked it out of the park for me so i was a big fan of pitch black and was excited to see this uh in the theater when it came out steve do you have any history with the riddick franchise i um like chris missed it in the theater uh i don't even think it was on my radar but post that movie uh, we had a mutual friend i think it was john who absolutely loved the movie and whenever we would get together, we'd be like, oh, let's watch Pitch Black. Yep, and yep. Um, so we would watch Pitch Black, and I'd seen it the first time with them. And no, I, I did enjoy it. I uh, recently rewatched it. I remember, yeah, really enjoying the, the monster design um, and thinking that, you know, it, yeah, it was a cool homage almost to Alien. Exactly like you guys, I did not manage to see it in the theater either, but saw it immediately on home video because I would see the ads on TV and I was like, oh, that looks cool. Looks like a good alien ripoff. So 
I ran right out and rented it, and I, I really enjoyed it. I didn't love it, but I thought it was cool and had a lot of potential. So when they came out with this Chronicles of Riddick, I was interested to see how they were going to continue with the character. Although I did not see Chronicles of Riddick in the theater either. Even though I was a fan, I wasn't that much of a fan, I guess, at the time. So I've actually come to really sort of appreciate what Vin Diesel does as Riddick more over time. The fact of the matter was, is when Vin Diesel first came out, I kind of thought he was just another sort of muscle-headed douchey guy. So I didn't immediately love him takes me a while to warm up to action heroes. I remember even that happening with like Sylvester Stallone in the 80s. And there has to be a movie that really kind of gets me into them. And the Riddick movies were what got me into Vin Diesel. And now I'm like a Vin Diesel fan. Yes, I, I've heard you often say, I'm here for the high octane diesel. And you are probably the biggest Vin Diesel fan I know. You know, like whenever I hear about The Rock and Vin Diesel fighting i'm always team diesel i'm like fuck the rock i like vin diesel (laughs) so so if the rock runs for president will you write in vin diesel yep that's right i will he's my guy he's my action guy i i really enjoy the triple x movies as dumb as they are the ones he's in not that one that he's not in fast and furious i enjoy i like them from five on when they get ridiculous and they become like spy movies with cars the early ones are just like eh, whatever but i really love fast five through all the rest of them just because they're so insane so yeah i'm i'm a fan and arguably my favorite role of his is richard b riddick so i have sort of come around to this movie i at first i kind of thought it was just weird and didn't get it so to speak And now I've sort of come to really enjoy it. But I have a feeling that, you know, I'm going to be running into a little uh, static about that. So (laughs) I guess I know him from Pitch Black first. Um, He was in Saving Private Ryan, which I don't really remember too well. Uh, He was the voice of the Iron Giants. Um, And then right after, yeah, I mostly know him from the um, Fast and Furious films and... uh, now, as you know, some of his other action films, I used, like the last movie, one of the last movies I saw before um, the lockdown happened was uh, Bloodshot. I bought that shit. Maybe that's another future podcast. But uh, yeah, and then um, he's expect you know, Groot in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Of course, yeah. And um, some future projects with Chris is probably interested in. What really endeared me to him, I think, was uh, there was sort of a famous interview that came out. I think around the time this movie came out where he admitted to being like a big D&D nerd and he had like a character named like with some ridiculous D&D name. I forget the name of his character. And I think he has a tattoo of the D&D character on him. Wow. And, uh, you know, the reason this franchise has even been able to continue is because he loves this character so much and he's such a role playing nerd. That's his nerd cred right there, huh? So I think that's what it was that really endeared me to him ultimately was he's just such a huge nerd secretly. You know, he has a, a twin, a twin brother who apparently Whoa, looks, looks no, nothing like him. Yeah, look him up on the on the Internet. It's kind of wacky because I think the twin has hair and it's just strange. Vin Diesel with hair is always a little bit disconcerting. Yes. I like him better. I like him when he doesn't have hair. He really looks good bald. He is a good actor, too. You know, out of all the muscle-bound heroes, I feel like he does have some 
some good chops. He he can act. Some legit chops. Yes, yeah. that's how I feel about it. Yeah, he seems like the kind of guy that knows that he can kind of just ride on his persona, but if he has to be a real actor, he can do it. Right. You know, but I think mo- most of the time he's happy just to show up and wear some tank tops right. and say some like, it's all about family or whatever, and, <laughs> and that's fine. I feel like he had some courtroom drama where he was really going to show off yeah. his acting chops. And I feel like that got him nowhere. And so he was like, all right, fuck it. I'm just keep doing my thing instead of going that route. But if I feel like if that had been received better, he might've ditched the action and for serious roles, but who knows? Well, that courtroom drama, he had like a, a hair piece or grew out his yeah. hair or something. That's, that's not his look. So no, no. But uh, the Riddick series is also the brainchild of uh, David Toohey the director. He directed all three of the movies. He wrote some other sci-fi stuff in the 90s. So, you know, this was also sort of his franchise, him and and Vin Diesel together. So it was in a kind of an unusual and I would say a bold move to go from a small, low budget sort of aliens type of ripoff to this. Now we're going to blow up the world into this big sci-fi universe and try to do big space opera, arguably. And I think this movie makes it pretty clear. The thing that it draws the most from, and some might say rips off the most from is Dune, especially in the design and stuff like the design of this movie really looks a lot like the David Lynch Dune, Mm -hmm. which for me is a plus because I love the way that movie looks and I want more of that look. And so I get it in this movie. So that's another thing about this movie I enjoy is the production design. It doesn't bother me that it's basically a ripoff. David Tui, uh, he wrote one of my favorite movies from, um, I guess, the 90s, The Fugitive. Oh, he wrote that. Okay, cool. And he also did um, Critters 2, Warlock, G.I. Jane. He wrote the screenplay. Like, nice. He's done good stuff. And this sort of like Pitch Black, which was like created by uh, two brothers, uh, Ken and Jim Wheat, they directed, I think, one of the Ewok movies. Nice. Oh, wow. So it's really cool that he took this franchise and just like, you know, ran with it. Yeah. Like you said, like pitch black, small success, and then threw tons of money at this one. Yeah. Apparently when they went to pitch this to universal, they had a Bible like document that was like the universe of Riddick where they went into all these different types of characters and planets and everything. And, it was a sort of overwhelming thing they would just throw down at the desks of the executives and they were just like, uh, fine, whatever, just go make your movie. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't want to read that thing. Get it out of my face. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> you can feel it in the movie. Oh, yeah. There was sort of a multimedia blitz for this movie. Not only did you have the, the animated uh, Dark Fury, but then you also had the video game. Butcher Bay, I believe. Yeah, which I played, which was, you know, at the time, very cool. But yeah, they were going on all fronts. Yeah, they were trying to make this the new Star Wars, and it did not work, which is why it is here on Tentpole Trauma. But interestingly, this movie is a bit of an anomaly for Tentpole Trauma because it did get a sequel. So 
it uh, bucks the trend in that way. But we'll talk about that when we get to the end, because the sure. sequel is definitely something that was arranged and not asked for, because this movie did really terribly. It's listed as one of the wor- one of the worst bombs in history, which is weird when you see the numbers. Mm. But anyway, um, did you guys watch the theatrical version or the unrated version? I think the theatrical I just watched the director's cut, and then I just rewatched the theatrical version. How long is the theatrical? It's like 15 more minutes, I believe, or something like that. The director's cut is 15 more minutes, yeah. Right. The theatrical is like two hours. We'll talk about it when the director's cut stuff happens. (laughs) Okay, because I think I just watched the regular two hours and 15 minute cut. Well, no, no. Yeah, the original cut was two hours, so I must have watched the, the extra one with the 15 minutes. Sorry, guys. But I saw it in the theater, so I, I have experience with the with the theatrical cut, obviously. If you watch it on the Blu-ray, you get an introduction from David Toohey where he explains uh-huh. that while you're watching it, you'll notice jump cuts where they've oh, added okay. the material back in because they couldn't get the, like digital thing to line up no way okay i saw some some jump cuts and i was like this is a interesting edit style here that's not exactly working that makes sense it ends okay. up looking like an artistic choice yeah. it doesn't it's not distracting right. but that's where you can see that oh this is where they added they put back in some footage or whatever right so right that's right. the giveaway he's really you know earnest you really feel his passion for the property in that little intro talking about the director's cut. So yeah, after you get that intro from David Tui, you get an intro basically just setting up the villains, which are the necromongers um, and the underverse, which is this uh, <sighs> dimension, I guess, where they're, they're trying to reach this dimension. And we're getting this explained to us by Judy Dench, who plays a character that we're going to meet later. But, you know, Judy Dench is there to add a little class to this. Apparently, Judy Dench took the job because Vin Diesel, like, cornered her in, like, a restaurant or whatever and was like, oh, Judy <laughs> Dench, I love you so much. Will you please be in my movie? Yeah, he's he's good at that. He he got Helen Mirren for um, Fast and the Furious, yep. you know? Apparently, he loves those, those old British English ladies. dames. And he'll say, like come join the party and you know i think helen mirren requested that she drive and he goes like you don't know what you're asking helen (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so and she apparently had no idea what she was saying she was like i just said my lines i have no idea Mm -hmm. what they meant (laughs) so we get our villains the necromongers and their leader is the lord marshall who's half alive and half something else whatever that means it's never really fully explained what the necromongers are or what the underverse are is I think we're to assume that it's some kind of place in between life and death or whatever we just basically see them destroy a world and Judy says if we're to beat this we need another kind of evil Chris sounds like you're already sort of having some problems with this movie did you feel this introduction set it up enough for you or were you like oh well it's just i don't know it's so different from pitch black it's just pretty much every single decision was the opposite of what made pitch black work for me so as soon as they started talking all this 
this big exposition dump, you know, it's more like Dune where I'm ready for a lot of exposition in Dune, a lot of mythology. I remember being like, what are they even talking about? And, and it, it was a similar feeling when I watched Highlander 2 for the first time. I was very excited for the sequel. Don't even compare this to Highlander 2. And then all of a sudden they're like expanding the universe and going, wait a minute, why do we need this? And, and it's just horrible. Like all of it, all the names... It's just, I, I don't have the energy to keep up, even at, at this early stage. And I, this is how I felt in the theater watching this, even though knowing that, you know, Lord of the Rings had just come out. And I think I read some reviews that they were really trying to, you know, expand it into this big, rich myth mythological universe. I'm just bored. Like, none of it excites me. None of the concepts are interesting to me. And I, it's an impressive opening visually. You know, I like the three multi-face thing. It kind of reminded me of the Quintessons from the Transformers cartoon. But I, <laughs> I am not enjoying it. And I'm, I'm, I'm not really following along. The production design, it's immediately in your face with a giant um, tower with the heads on it. Which I love. No, it's, it's very cool. The production design throughout this movie is frankly incredible you see the money on the screen but uh when you're shown the necromancer world or religion you're like what is going on like this is completely not what i even though i probably saw the trailer it was sort of like wow they they really took it somewhere else but i feel like you it's like you're either going to get on board with it or you're not and it's like I get it that this isn't pitch black, but why would you want them to just do pitch black again? There's not enough meat on that bone to go back to like, what, they're going to go to another planet with like monsters on it? That's going to be boring. But instead they they go from red meat to like veganism, you know? It's like, it's, it's a total 180, whereas like, I feel like the third sequel gave us a little bit, you know, I feel like that was the proper way to go and... They're trying to bust this thing wide open. I get it if it's not going to work for you, but I don't feel like doing Pitch Black 2 is the way to no, go. No, I, I get it. But Sebastian, you you know when you like like you loved Joshua Tree and then they came out with like, you know, Actung Baby or Zuro Ropa and you're like, totally, yeah. what the fuck is this? Give me the old stuff. Sure, this is basically yeah. what happened to anyone that was into pitch black i think that's a poor poor analogy because octoon baby does deliver with still giving the goods i, I get what you're saying but uh, i feel like that's the thing that they're missing is do it well and this just like all these concepts the, like the necromancer or whatever they're you know it just doesn't do anything for me it's not interesting so you know they're obviously doing the lord of the rings thing and it's just it's not anywhere nearly near as uh exciting and interesting it's taking it Onto a scale of, say, you know, the epicness of Conan the Barbarian and Dune movies from like the 80s. Exactly. That's what they're trying to do. Trying I get to go it. For that grand scale. And David Tui is a director, writer of that mold. Are you feeling a little better in this next section? Because in the next section, we get our hero, Riddick, who's now bearded and long haired, and he's running through this snowy world called UV system planet six. And he's being hunted by these bounty hunter mercenary types led by tombs who is played by Nick Chinland and tombs is a sort of Han Solo. If he was a like million times more of an asshole, basically. <laughs> and, yeah. um, 
his crew is hunting um, Riddick and they've got this ship that have these like hanging harnesses for the gunners outside. And they're chasing Riddick across this crazy landscape. And, you know, Riddick is ghosting the gunners with one of his cool blades. He like cuts one of the gunners down and kills him. He basically gets the trop on tombs and learns that they've been hired by somebody in Helion Prime to get the hit on him or to capture him or whatever. Riddick knows who that is. It's a character from Pitch Black, and he takes Toom's ship and leaves him on the snowy planet. This was pretty cool. You know, this is giving you more of what Pitch Black gave us is just, you know, Riddick badassness. And so I, I thought it was cool and imaginative. You know, we hadn't seen a snow planet, and his look is, is cool. It definitely kind of reminded me of... Jason Momoa almost with um, oh, yeah. just like, you know, the long hair and everything. Um, it, it was cool. I, I don't love the bounty hunter character and actor at all. It's just he's not working for me either, which is another part of the movie that that kind of fails for me. All, all the sort of background characters are are annoying. I feel like, yeah, he's he's not you don't love to hate him like Cole Hauser. This just goes to show how like. They're trying to bring that type of character back in, but failing. I like him. I think he works perfectly well in the movie. He's got kind of a Ron Perlman meets Han Solo vibe. And he's funny. He's got some good moments. And I like that he keeps getting screwed and Riddick keeps leaving him places. And, you know, it's a funny running gag. And I like when Riddick says, like, you know, fucking insulting. Like you came light and tells him all the mistakes that he made. Yeah, that's Riddick being cool. That's that's not really the other character. Right, like, but he's playing off him well. Like I feel okay. like they're like like yeah. as for as far as a character goes to play off of Riddick, I think he's pretty decent. I mean, yeah, he's not like blow your mind awesome, but I think he works fine. I think he does a good job. I like that he's sort of of the same mold of, as John's. He's like a bounty hunter. He's a little bit more fun than John's was in the first movie, Cole Hauser. Oh, come on. No one's better than Billy Badass. I don't know him from any other roles, though. No, that's what they called him in Pitch Black. I think the problem here is I don't love Pitch Black as much as you do. Like, I think Pitch Black is fine. Th there it is. But there are things about Pitch Black that I think aren't great. I don't care about Cole Hauser in that movie. I think there are annoying filmic tricks in that movie. Like, I hate the blasted out color. I hate the whole introduction with the spaceship crashing and it's shaking I, like there's stuff in that movie i don't like yeah but that was that's all budget constraints that's that's a way for them to get away with it and still at the time you have to understand how it was i understand that i understand that but i'm my point is that i feel like you are, are holding that movie on a pedestal that i do yes. not hold it on Fair enough. I do not like it that much but this movie does make a bunch of callbacks to the world of that was set up by pitch black like totally, the yeah. mercenary bounty hunters, you know, the chase, the the weird environments um, like Planet Six. And I like that it throws this, you know, curveball at you in the beginning, but then it comes back and is like, no, this is this is a Riddick story. Sebastian, are you saying that do you enjoy this movie more than Pitch Black or think this is a better movie than Pitch Black? I do. Really? I don't know if I would say it's a bad. I would agree with you that Pitch Black is tighter. Yeah. But it's not as ambitious. Like, obviously, I started this podcast because I'm interested in big swings. Right. Yeah. It's great if you can pull something off, if you've got a small idea and you don't fuck it up. That's great. That's awesome. But 
I like big ideas. I like to see big swings for the fences. Sure. This is not as good of a movie, yeah. but I okay. appreciate that it's starting from this smaller movie and blowing it up big and trying something way bigger. And I get it if it's not working for you. I definitely agree that a lot of what the Necromongers are about is fuzzy and not well-defined. It's not the strongest element of the movie. No, I'm, I think it, I think it, the movie... Set, is setting up a bunch of stuff that David Tui and his, you know, thick phone book of world building was trying to push through. Yeah. Yes, for sure. So after this, we get a really brief um, scene at the Ingenion system planet crematoria. Like they needed, they just call it planet crematoria. I don't need all the other shit. Yeah, they're trying really hard with all this, like Helion Prime and True. And I'm like, okay. The names are a little goofy. Like, yeah, the planet that's like a crematorium is called Crematoria, but whatever. Like, Star Wars is goofy too. Like, I can roll with it. I. Goofy names are a part of sci-fi fantasy. I'll remember that when you talk about unobtainium. I feel that this um, shot of crematoria and then the sort of like the dialogue that Riddick speaks is in the director's cut and it's not in the theatrical cut. It's the scene with Kira in the dog pens or whatever. Is that in the theatrical? That's, um, I believe that's the director's cut. I don't feel it's necessary. He decided to throw it in for whatever reason, just to establish that that character is there. I like the idea of these spike panthers or whatever. They were almost like the crystal foxes. (laughs) Yes. In The Last Jedi. Less cute. (laughs) They're more mean. I definitely felt they were more cat-like, panther-like than dog-like. Some of the CG in this has dated kind of poorly it's not as good as it would have been at the time i don't think the dogs were that bad though they're fine they're fine but you know there's cg in this movie that definitely has not stood the test of time but then in the director's cut we also get you know as riddick is putting himself into cryo sleep to travel to helium in tombs's uh ship he's having these dreams of this I don't know, she's a priestess or something, this Furian woman who's telling him that something bad happened in Furia and she puts a glowing hand to his chest and tells him that he will remember. This, I remember not being in the theatrical cut and being something people were talking about helped to have it make a little more sense or whatever, but it's definitely kind of goofy. It's not particularly well done, but... It's just trying to set up something in the plot that's going to come up later. Right. Now, having seen the theatrical release right after the director's cut, I feel that this is only there to set up a future plot line or even um, another part in the director's cut. But it's absolutely unnecessary in the movie. I think the movie's better off without the, all of this. Chris, did you probably thought that this was terrible, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All the scenes with her that come in, it just it feels so awkward and shoved in. You're like, what is it? Huh? Is this a dream? Is this what? And uh. they're trying to establish that he was this child of this planet that was, you know, when they when they were all destroyed by the necromonger. So he's the prophecy child or whatever, you know, typical prophecy stuff. And that whole thing kind of doesn't work for me. You know, I mean, aren't we supposed to just have him be mysterious? Like, this is the the complaint I always hear about, you know, where people go, oh, that's just fan service. Why do you have to explain where Han Solo came from? It's kind of doing the same thing here where you're like, just have Riddick be a badass. And I don't really need to have this him be a descendant of this great 
you know, lineage or whatever. Just like he's just a badass and let's have that. Right. I agree. I agree with you. I, I see why they're putting it in there. They're putting it in there to give it this mythological weight. But mm-hmm. I, I'd agree. It doesn't need to be there. And it gets pretty much abandoned in the next movie. So yeah, he can't be Boba, Boba Fett and Luke Skywalker. You know what I mean? Like, just pick one. <laughs> So he gets to Helium Prime, the planet where he's going to uh, meet up with Imam. You know, he gets hassled by some patrol ships, but he sort of bucks them off. Definitely Helium Prime feels like Dune, specifically the city uh, in Dune. Yeah, the Middle Eastern flavor to it. And yeah, this part kind of looks a little like the uh, miniseries. Yeah. yeah. I mean, oh, it God. looks better than that, but it looks better than that. But it, Does it? Yeah, it looks fine. I mean, it's obviously sets and stuff, but they're decent. It looks decent, I think. I guess. And then we meet this character, Imam, who, if you've seen Pitch Black, he was one of the main characters in that, and Riddick saved him. So, you know, Riddick is understandably wondering why this guy he saved, who is a holy man, played by Keith David, is, you know, putting this bounty out on him. Imam's walking the streets, and he's hearing people talking about the necromongers coming. There's this fearful talk about this these invaders. And when he gets home... Riddick is waiting for him, shaving off his beard and his hair. It's like doing it with a dagger. And so we get sort of like a little brief recap of what happened in Pitch Black from Riddick. Like he's explaining, I saved you and these other people. And, you know, of course, Imam explains that he did it to get Riddick there so Riddick can help fight the necromongers. He had to do something, I guess. That's when Imam's wife and daughter show up and the daughter asks him if he's killed monsters, which we know he has because we've seen Pitch Black. I love Keith David ever since Platoon and, and Men at Work. And, yeah, um, Men at Work. I love that movie. Like, never, ever touch another man's fries. So great. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know what I'm talking about. So it's always good to see him. Um, but it is a little bit ridiculous about how he's just like, well, let me just put a a hit out on you in order to get you back here. Is it ridiculous? It's ridiculous. (laughs) Yes. I was waiting to use that, but uh, you beat me to it. But yeah, it's just, it seems a little bit odd. And, and I thought I'm like, okay, this is the whole, this is the sort of, um, you know, who he has to save because we know he doesn't care about anybody except for maybe these people he's, you know, been through this experience with and oh, the family is going to be the whole, who he has to save. But then, they're not really in the rest of the movie, and that, that to me is a little upsetting. They show up a little bit, but yeah, they're not really characters in the rest of the movie. They just represent humanity. Yeah, right. So if you save humanity, you include these people yes. who you're supposed to care about. But that's another problem with the movie to me is that they keep introducing different characters that, oh, you're supposed to care about these guys. Yeah. These are the good guys. These are the sub-good guys, sub-bad guys. And then I'm like... Who who cares? So like to me, I don't have the energy in this type of movie to to track everybody. I definitely agree with you, with you on that point later on, like when we get to the prison planet, because we get a whole bunch of characters introduced there that don't mm-hmm. really end up mattering. But no, I mean, I love Keith David. His voice is amazing. You know, Men at Work. Um, he was recently in a uh, Future Man on Hulu. He was hilarious. It's nice to see him working. I like the continuity. So having Pitch Black as a backstory is at least working for you guys in this, right? 
Oh, absolutely. We'll get we'll get to yeah. more. What happens after this is the comet has shown up, and the comet is this thing that sort of lets you know that the necromongers are coming. And you know, we learn that if Helion Prime falls, all the planets in the system will fall. So that's why this planet is so important. It's providing light to all the other planets. And Riddick's just like, oh, well, it has to end sometime. So we're getting the resistant hero up front here. And um, then a bunch of envoys show up who look a lot like Fremen. And with them, mm -hmm. they have the elemental Arion, played by Dame Judi Dench. And she is this being that sort of half corporeal, half air, so she can sort of float and things can pass through her and stuff. So Right. They describe her as um, part of the elemental race who are apparently neutral, except in this case. It's that kind of fantasy character, like the elves in Lord of the Rings. You know, there's usually some sort of race that's sort of sitting in the balance and trying to be in the middle, but trying to sort of direct things in the right way. She talks a lot about how the elementals want balance, you know, kind of like the balance of the force and, you know, only a Furian can bring it. It's sort of wishy-washy fantasy nonsense, but it's no worse than Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, in my opinion. Like, it's just that kind of thing. But at least in Star Wars, you have like all the different aliens, which makes it feel like you're in space, whereas here it's more like everyone's human. I don't even know where the elemental race come from because as far as I can tell that in the Riddick universe, the humans from Earth expanded out into the galaxy and this is the result of life uh -huh. centuries after the the diaspora of humanity. I kept waiting for the other elements to show up. Like where was... If she's air, then fire or earth or whatever. This isn't the fifth element, Chris. And then love shows up. Well, you know, you you say there's an there's an element, you know, like I thought we would maybe get the others to like have some kind of final battle or something like that. Maybe they were saving that for the future prequels in the Bible, but um I'm sure they were. I'm sure if this had been a big hit, we would have gotten more elementals in the next movie. More dames to to play the other the ones. Helen Mirren? Yeah. It is definitely a tricky thing that you're setting up this sci-fi universe, but more or less all the characters are human or sort of human variants. They're not, like you said, aliens. It's clearly set up in pitch black that Imam is like a Muslim and he's trying to go to Mecca with his like fellow disciples or whatever. But then you're introducing a new religion here, the one religion to rule them all. And Helian Prime is basically the melting pot of all religions that are, all religions are welcome. It is human. It is earthlings that brought their religions into space. And here's um, the necromancers trying to destroy everything. Well, actually, first what happens is these guards show up looking for a spy. And, like, Imam guilts Riddick with leaving Jack, hoping that that's going to be the thing that will be like, oh, you left Jack, so you'll leave us. But so, yeah, these these guards show up. They're all in a room surrounding him. And he he's got these candles. And he puts out the candles because... As we learned in Pitch Black, Riddick has these eyes that can see in the dark because he got them shined at like a prison planet for a pack of cool cigarettes or whatever. Menthols, I think. 
menthols. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and so, you know, we get our first little taste of Riddick fucking up people because he's got the advantage of being able to see in the dark. But he still doesn't go along with Imam's uh, request to help them out. And he basically takes off and we get a scene of him sort of running along the rooftops for whatever reason as the necromongers are invading. You're trying to care about a giant invasion when you're, you know, our guy doesn't care either. So I, I didn't really care. It wasn't that impressive to me. I, even the action where he puts out the lights and just starts, you know, fucking people up is all just kind of like editing trickery. And there's, you can't really actually tell what he's doing to them other than just throwing them against the wall or something like that. Yeah, this is definitely the part of the movie where I remember in the theater going, oh, I don't like this movie. <laughs> it's not working for me. And I was turning definitely for sure. Like, you know, because I was I was on board with some of, you know, you know, I love the character of Riddick, just like you. Oh, I did like the, the hound, the hound Fremen, the, the, the guys with the weird um, circular, like blue port window. I think they're called um, lensers or something. Yeah, they're called yeah, lensers. Those, those designs were cool, even though it's still kind of like a, a, a Dune ripoff. But uh, I enjoyed that. I'll, I'll give a, a thumbs up to that. The sound effect for them is very much the, the clicking of the alien. It's almost exactly the same sound. Right, yeah. The ground invasion and the, the sky battle, it's just for plot. You're not really supposed to care. It's not like they're focusing on the pilots or the dog fights. It's just there. I do love the, the ship. It's like a radiator grill that flips and then it's a face. The designs for ships in the, the world of Riddick, they're kind of like, at least in these first two movies, pretty, pretty garbage. No, no, the first one's yeah. fine, but the designs here are like, Tombs is a uh, skiff and uh, the necromancer ships, even the crossbow moon shapes of, of the, the Helion Prime ship. They're all like... Not great. I think some of them are cool. I like the design of the necromonger stuff. I like the sort of Roman element to them and the sort of brushed metal look to them. So I agree with you with the Merc's ship and all that. They're not terribly exciting designs. But I didn't think the ship design in Pitch Black was exciting either. It's almost like yeah. the Pitch Black universe is more just sort of utilitarian which right. is why I think the necromongers are a nice contrast to that because they obviously care about how things look. You know, they've got like statues, they've got everything right. like all sort of art decoy looking. You know, they're they're clearly operating on a different aesthetic than the rest of the universe. And a huge budget, whatever yeah. the design, the their aesthetic is is it's amazing. Yes, but it's uh, you're like who spent the time to make all this yeah, stuff. It's like the it's, Roman yeah. Empire, though. That's the way the Roman Empire... It's totally influenced by the Roman Empire because they had all the, you know, they had the masks, the metal masks that they made. The helmets on the necromancers look a little bit large for their heads. I do like the face motifs, especially on um, the Lord Marshal. One thing I do like that's going on here is I feel that uh, Tui does a good job giving... Then some pretty good hero shots. There's a nice shot when he's like looking up at the invasion. That's pretty cool. I remember seeing it in the trailers. And I, I feel like he works well with making Vin look cool, which totally. is not as easy as you think, because honestly, Vin Diesel is kind of a strange looking guy. 
And to make him yeah. look as heroic as he does in this movie, I think is to be commended. He knows how to sure. photograph Vin. He gives him lots yeah. of good poses and highlights his muscles in a lot of the shots. I think Riddick is becomes much more iconic in this movie than he was in Pitch Black. In Pitch Black, he's like the best character in the movie, but he's part of an ensemble. Whereas here, mm-hmm. he's becoming Conan the Barbarian or whatever. He's becoming a mythical hero. Definitely. It's establishing his legend. It is the Chronicles yes. of yeah. Riddick. I think they even went back and um, for certain like disc releases renamed Pitch Black, the Chronicles of Riddick, Pitch Black. I hate when they do that. That's lame. Yeah, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's not Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. God damn it. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I agree. So, yeah, there's this big invasion and like, you know, Riddick saves Imam and his family because they get caught in a tr- crossfire. And there's this moment where... The Necros kill a bunch of people with this staff bomb that they pound into the ground and it explodes, killing a bunch of people. But the main thing here is that we meet Vako, played by Carl Urban, who's got to be the guy in the most sci-fi fantasy franchises in history. Carl Urban is just in everything from Lord of the Rings to Star Trek to Riddick. He needs to be in Star Wars. He's got to finish off the deal. Like, you know, like get Carl Urban in there. Yeah, Dread. He's just, he's the guy. He's even like in the Bourne movies. The Boys. Yeah, so love Carl Urban. He's, great. he's sort of an unsung hero. He's our main human villain in a sense. He's kind of the, you know, major domo to the Lord Marshal, but we spend a lot of time with Vako and his wife, Dame Vako, played by Thandi Newton who looks really good in all her costumes. And I love her whole Lady Macbeth thing. They keep coming back to this thing between Vako and Dame Vako, where basically she's trying to get him to kill the Lord Marshal. And it's this through line through the movie. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm always down for Carl Urban. Yeah. I was excited to see him in the theater because I remember he had just done Lord of the Rings and this was the next thing I saw him in. And I was like, oh yeah, he was really great as the, what are they called? The Rohan. He was one of the Rohan writers. And I was like, that guy's got some good, good presence. Yeah. And I was happy to see him in this. I feel like he's not given, other than a cool look, he's not given that much to do. But I remember being like, oh, this guy's cool and he's going places. And so I was happy that this could lead to wherever, you know, Dread or his other roles. But um, I, I'm i not excited about his character so much as, um, you know, Thandie Newton really gets to chew up the scenery and that's fun. Well, I loved um, Carl Urban in The Two Towers. So, and it was really different to see him here with, you know, no beard, the black hair. He looks so young in this movie. I just, Mm -hmm. looking back at it now, um, and uh, Thandiway Newton, she looks amazing, uh, was great in Mission Impossible 2, even though that's not a great Mission Impossible movie. But yeah, she is killing it. And I I feel so bad that people waited until, like, to put her in something like Westworld or, you know, she was wasted, absolutely wasted in Solo, a Star Wars story. Um, yeah, totally. She's just very good at what she does, and she definitely plays a very strong female character here. Yeah, she chews up the scenery in just the perfect way. She's over the top, but she keeps it right where it needs to be, like right where her character needs to be. She's such a great 
presence and you're right like she needed to be in everything why wasn't she in everything like how could you not look at her and say put her in your movie you know like she and she can do all sorts of different types of characters so yeah i mean history really uh wasted thandy newton not putting her in more movies but yeah she's great in this i love her character in this and she's so much fun to watch and she's beautiful to look at so she's kind of the eddie redmayne of uh, jupiter ascending <laughs> they have the same role but the energy is the same is that what you're saying <laughs> exactly chew up the scenery in any way you can just go for it the big scene that happens after this is the necromongers have basically gathered all these people in this i don't know where it's supposed to be sometimes the locations in this movie are a little sketchy like i'm like where are we now we're just in a big room it's like the, the town heating a meeting hall of the uh, the necropolis and he basically is giving them the the pitch that they can join them and convert and it's very much framed as like a religious conversion this is a place where all these different religions have come and the necromongers are going to force them to convert they can either convert or die and you know in order to convert i think you basically have to sort of half die or whatever and we see their power of the Lord Marshal when one of the guys is like, well, I'm not going to do it. And the Lord Marshal grabs him and basically pulls his soul out of his body. That was very cool seeing um, the purifier, the person that's expounding the, the greatness of the Mechorinomance religion um, played by Linus Roach. Is that Thomas Wayne? Uh, yes. Dr. Yep. Thomas Wayne. And also he's the cult leader in Mandy. Mandy yes. Yes, he's so psycho. After after that movie, I can't look at him the same. I'm like, that guy is... Oh, he's a weird-looking guy. He's intense, yeah, yeah. for sure. No, he's so great in this. He give, definitely gives me the um, the sort of sting vibe from Dune, the blonde hair and, and everything. And he's wearing, like, a face hugger on his head. Right, Chris, right. you didn't like the face <laughs> hugger on his head? That was cool. There's some alien design in the Necromongers look. They, there's a little bit of that kind of biomechanical feel to some of the no things doubt. they wear. Yeah. This movie is certainly guilty of just pulling from a lot of different other more uh, famous uh, sci-fi movies and repurposing them. But again, that's something I kind of like. I like it when movies do that. Pulling out the soul was cool. Again, I just feel like this is too much mythology for me and I wasn't really tracking it at this point. You know, it, it just feels so incongruous to what, again, like, pitch, you know, the real world down to earth, you know, hardcore survival movie that Pitch Black was. This just, you know, I, it's hard for me to care about it. I would think that you would kind of connect to this because you tend to like spiritual themes in movies. That's true. Like, that's something that seems to work for you. So I'm kind of surprised to find that you were so checked out of it that you couldn't appreciate some of this we haven't really seen this kind of thing in a sci-fi movie where we're talking about like souls and shit yeah i i applaud their effort i just just for some reason it just doesn't connect with me whatever they're doing i'm not whatever they're selling i'm not buying sorry that you didn't like that speech by lane roach because i mean that's probably the guys that did mandy they're like they saw him in in chronicles of Riddick and be like Oh, he's the guy. He's the guy. Yeah, he he delivers that good, but um, I don't know. It's not for me. So what happens at this point is Riddick reveals himself. He's been hanging out in the background in a robe or whatever, and he you know pulls off his hood, and he's there to basically kill this guy that he saw kill. Uh, Keith David, yeah, Imam. Keith David, yeah. I forgot to say that there a dude with a knife in his back. I believe 
that knife was put there by the imam um, when he was trying to defend his family. I, I didn't notice. I, I mean, that's the impression that I got, because why would this guy just have a, a knife in his back? It must be hard to sleep with that thing. Okay, I thought it was that that was like, since they're half alive and half dead, I thought, oh, maybe that was like his, how, how he died. That's kind of how I took like it, yeah. he's like a resurrected person, but I, obviously it's there just to signify this is the fucking guy that killed Keith David. So yeah, Riddick uh, picks a fight with this guy because he killed a mom and, you know, he basically kills him with his own knife. After that, the Lord uh, Marshal hands Riddick the knife that he killed the guy with and explains to him that in this society of the necromongers, you get to keep what you kill. And this is an important thing to remember because it's going to come back. It's a cool concept. The, the fact that they even like, they're like Riddick wants to challenge this guy and then everyone's like that's our way that's our religion you know one-on-one -on -one, go to it. It, it it's all setting stuff up for later there's a kind of a nice moment where he hands him the knife and riddick you know spins the knife and he asks him how he likes the knife and riddick's like oh it's a little light in the back end or whatever in the director's cut the lord marshal says um are you familiar to me um which yes. is setting us up some stuff later which is not in the theatrical cut um the lord marshal i think i'd seen him before he's one of those like the villains that you're like why is this guy the villain um shouldn't they have picked someone else uh, but yeah Colm fiore uh, was the doctor that performed the surgery in Face Off, and right. he was also <laughs> the King Laufey in um, Thor, which came out, you know, mm -hmm. much later. He's good in the part, but it's sort of like um, when Bill Nye was um, was in Underworld. Yeah, and, and you're like, who the hell is this guy? But now I freaking love him, you know, especially after like Love Actually, and I guess pirates or whatever but like you got judy dench and then you got i guess you spent all your money so you couldn't get like a top tier villain actor to play lord marshall he's one of those guys that strikes me as he's probably british shakespearean type of actor you know like totally he's a guy that would play like an imperial officer in a star wars movie yeah. or whatever yeah he's he's fine it's just too many characters that keep track of i feel like you know you could have combined this lord marshall and thomas wayne and used one used the thomas wayne actor and it would have been stronger you know and carl urban is his goon okay i get that but I, to me it's just yeah one too many nondescript villains and i'm like nah. i don't feel like there's too many villains here you basically have four you have the lord marshal who's the main guy You've got Vako and Dame Vako, and then you've got the Purifier. That's four. That's, that's not that much. That's three too many. <laughs> For you. Well, I'm just trying to say, like, if, if you're going to cast, you know, if you're saying that like, they didn't you know, find the right casting for this one guy. You're just sitting there hating everything because it's not pitch black. You're not getting the movie you want, so you don't like that's it. That's true. That's true. I'm not meeting. I tried to meet this ha halfway. It's an Alien 3 situation where no matter what the movie's doing, because they killed off Newton Hicks, then we're, it, I hate it. Like, that's your reaction. That's true. You're not giving it anything. Wow, did I miss some um, long discussion about Alien 3? Because I would love to jump into that. <laughs> Chris hates Alien no, 3. No, don't start that up again. Don't start that, that up again. It's great. We will save it for Alien another 3. day. When... 
Yes. Yes, you do. You hate it. Sure. Um, can we talk about his Vin Diesel's one-liners? Because, you know, as good as they are, and it's what you come to see this movie for, at a certain point, it starts to be like that the button to every scene he has is his one-liner, and it feels like almost like a quota has to be reached, and you're just like, okay, he's got to say one, uh, another one here, another one you here. You love it when just... it's Arnold. You don't have a problem with that when it's an Arnold movie and everything's a one-liner. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, they they have, like, I love the one-liners, but they're not all, you know, hitting it out of the park, and I just feel like they could have cut a few of them to keep the strong ones strong. It they're just, not it smooth. seems like every scene there's... He's got a one-liner to end the thing, and, and it, it, it felt like, gotta have another one. Gotta have another one. I don't care how shitty it is. I don't think it's so bad that Dandewin Newton walks by him, and she's like, he's like, it's been a long time since I smelled beautiful. I mean... That's one of the winners. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You have the director, writer of a bunch of 80s films, and he's in it to do that kind of thing here. He wants to put in these lines. My beef with it isn't that they're there. It's just that there's so many and not all of them are great. I think it could have benefited from some editing of, of all the lines. I understand what you're saying. At a certain point, it feels like it's a, it, for me, it's more of just, it's not even that the lines are good or bad. It feels like they're just trying to do this. They're ending the same, the scene with the same rhythm every time. Exactly. It starts to feel repetitive. Right. Oh, here it comes again. Yeah. yeah, the same beat is being played over and over. But I love Vin Diesel so much that I don't care. I just want him to do whatever Fair makes enough. himself happy. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Absolutely. I would be a terrible director of a Vin Diesel movie because I would just Go be like, for it, Vin. just do whatever you want, Vin. <laughs> you know, it's funny. If you, I remember listening to the commentary track to Pitch Black, and it's the two of them, and they have a really good rapport together. You should actually listen to it, Sebastian. It's, it's a lot of fun to listen to them talk. And Vin will say, in a lot of the shots, he's like, oh, I love that. Love that. That's so great. And he goes, this part was totally over the top. It's like when he cuts um, the blonde girl's hair, I think, and he like, he sniffs it and he's yeah. like, behind, he's hiding behind them. And he goes, this part is over the top, though. I can't believe you kept that in. And it's when he like blows the hair off off his hand or something like uh -huh. that. Yeah. And <laughs> even Vin was like, that's I just did that on the whim, you know, I just like, I was just goofing around. You shouldn't have kept that in there. And the director's like, no, I loved it. And so it sounds like the same thing that you're talking about, Sebastian, where right. the director just loves everything that Vin does. And even Vin's like, eh, come on, that was goofy. You don't keep that in. And I mean, it, it sets up Riddick as being sort of a creep, like in a, like a yeah. bad way. Totally. And, and they play that up in the third movie. Anyway. Uh, yeah. They, they bring him to this room full of like, the quasi dead yep. to basically force mind read him for the Lord Marshal. Yeah, because he wants to find out what the connection is between them or whatever. So, yeah, he's being sort of forced to have his mind raped by these women that are in sort of these coffin like pods and they've got these veils over them. Yeah, I really couldn't make them out. They're sort of creepy horror movie type of things. It feels a little like minority report. What are the a little bit precogs yeah. called? You know, yeah. where yeah, they have to work in tandem and lie down and I couldn't even tell make out the shapes of them behind the veil because they sort of reminded me of the um the teleportation worm creatures from Dune, just the way they were brought into the room. Um, and then right. you have like the, 
the telepathic water. No, I, I see what you're saying. It's definitely taking Dune elements and kind of remixing Absolutely. them into something. Yeah. Like, it's all very Dune. It's not exactly what Dune would do. The ripples but... in the water is pretty much exactly Dune. I mean... <laughs> There's a lot of Dune in here. I'm surprised if they didn't just take take the Jodorowsky Dune Bible and throw that on the executive's desk and was like, they're not going to look at it. And like, <laughs> Yeah, but basically these quasi-dead figure out that he's Furion and order him killed and they're like, kill the Riddick, kill the Riddick. This is one thing that I'll totally give you, Chris, if you want to call bullshit here, because Riddick just basically escapes by climbing up on one of these quasi-dead's coffin and then it sort of retracts into the wall and that Thandie Newton's like, who is this man? And it's a really great shot of her when she says that. But then, like, we just cut and he's just running outside. Like, he just yeah, got away. Yeah. Like, how did, like, they, it was like they didn't know how he was going to get out of this. So they're like, oh, he'll just climb up on top of one of their th coffins and then he'll be out. They have him locked down on the platform and it's like a magnetic. Yeah, he's magnetized to it. Well, like. And then the purifier is the person that hits a button to have him released. It sounds as if it's like, you know, Luke Skywalker jumps into the trash compactor and then the next scene you cut, they're on the Millennium Falcon getting away. And you're like, yeah, I understand that they get to unmagnetize and that's whatever. But what they I, what I don't understand is why, you know, whatever's behind these coffins gets you immediately. They, they don't show you how he gets <laughs> out of the necropolis or whatever. And now he's just running in the street. Yeah, showing like him like getting put through some vacuum tube or something that just, yeah. you know, takes him away. But yeah. I mean, that could have killed the pacing of the movie. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, you already know that he's great about escaping and hiding. He, he escaped from Butcher Bay, you know, it's like the Necropolis ship is nothing. <laughs> I think it's just it just moves the story along. We know he got out. Definitely what the quasi did, I feel like, are supposed to be are the like witches, the oracle of witches, you know, in on like fates. Clash yeah. of the Titans or whatever. Yes. Yeah. It's that same kind of idea. That's basically what they are. So anyway, he Riddick has escaped miraculously and with no explanation, and now he's running through the city and he's being chased, but Tombs and his new crew show up to uh capture him but riddick is cool with it because they're gonna get him off the planet so they capture him and take him to crematorium and there's you know a scene where riddick is uh basically making fun of the new crew and you know did you tell him what happened to the old crew and like your crew seems a little skittish tombs that's fun again right yeah see this stuff is fun you said you didn't like this character but it's when they're together i feel like the movie kind of has a little bit of life that it doesn't have otherwise sure. now this is a great scene because it's riddick tricking tombs into actually bring him to crematoria which is where he wants to go yeah they go through all the different slams that he's been in right, and like butcher bray yeah like, <laughs> oh they've got a cell waiting for me there and you know yeah, and he's trying to get to Crematoria because he knows that Jack's there. After that, we get this really weird scene, which I don't know why is in here, where the female Merc, Eve, who's played by Christina Cox, who this actress has like gone on into being like a million Lifetime movies, is like the mom. Oh, really? Yeah, so it's so weird to see her playing like a mercenary in this movie because I've just seen her as a mom in a ton of Lifetime movies. It's like Diane Weiss being a yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> being an aliens. 
She's not who I would associate as a badass bounty hunter. But yeah, she's crawling. He's in cryosleep or they're all supposed to be sleeping or whatever. And she's sort of crawling up on him because he's Riddick and he's so sexy that she can't resist. There definitely is a lot of attempts to really make Riddick out to be really hot. Like, oh, women the want Sexual him. Tyrannosaurus. Right, like he's got a <laughs> sexual allure to the ladies, you know? That makes sense. I, I don't feel this was necessary. Not necessary, yes, that's true. Like, she goes to lift up his goggles, and he just opens up his eyes, and like, it's just a setup that he's a sexy motherfucker. It's an odd scene, yeah. This is on their way to the prison, right? Like, we're gonna get to the prison... Yeah, yeah, but the, it goes back to the necromancers and their um, their scheming. I think for a little bit. Yeah, basically, the Lord Marshal just wants. They talk. Lord Marshal's talking about his conquest plans, and then Vako tries to sneak up on him, but then you know the Lord Marshal's soul turns around and sees him. So we know, oh, it's not that easy to sneak up and kill the Lord Marshal. We're also getting this stuff from Thandie Newton's character that she wants him to kill the Lord Marshal, but. Vako doesn't want to do it because the Lord Marshal's powerful and the Lord Marshal wants to send Vako after Riddick, which Vako's like, why do I need to go after this guy? And, you know, we get another scene with uh, Vako and Dame Vako and he hits her, which is, you know, probably not something people want to see in movies these days very much. Like he hits her for mouthing off, but then you know, he throws her on a table and she gets kind of hot by his action. So it's a little rapey. And then she's like, I want to go down on you in the necropolis or whatever and sort of drags him off. And then we see Judy Dench being led in there and she has to go before the Lord Marshal and tell him where Riddick went. I think the makeout scene after the slap is definitely the director's cut because I don't remember seeing that. In particular, in the Dajagal, yeah. It's a little questionable, for sure. Right. No, I'm I'm cool with it. It was like um, angry <laughs> sex after an argument. Like that was Sure. Cool. It reminded me of Goldeneye, you know, that sort of uh, half fight, half sex scene. Dandy, uh, sorry, uh, Dame Vako invites or, you know, brings Ariane or the Judy Dench. Sorry, I'm just going to call them by the actor's names. Um, to her private ship to find out why the Lord Marshal is so afraid of Riddick. And she threatens to like throw her out of the open bay on the ship. And, but then Judy Dench sort of floats over it. So right. Can you fly? I can float. <laughs> right. I believe she says she can glide glide. Sorry. But I mean, you know, who doesn't want to see a, a scene between Thandie Newton and Dame Judy Dench in a spaceship. I'd like, like to see a better scene. How can you not be loving this? This is like a spaceship scene with the two of them. Sure. Awesome. Judy Dench spills the, the prophecy of Riddick that, you know, the Lord Marshal destroyed Furia, but didn't kill the man-child Riddick. I'm guessing this is probably not in the theatrical cut. It is. Oh, it is. I think okay. I think she does. She says, like, um, she tell, tells um, Dame Vaco that, like, you know, you didn't have to bring me here by force. I would have just told you about Riddick if you'd asked. Um, and then goes to explain um, that it was prophesied 30 years ago. That a warrior who we, you know, assumed to be Lord Marshall went to a seer and asked, you know, about the future. And the seer said, you know, a Furian's going to kill you 
or you're going to die at the hands of Furion. It's kind of lame that a prophecy is only 30 years old. Like, aren't prophecies usually like millennia or whatever? It's just like, hey, this prophecy is only 30 years old. How good could it be? We're assuming that Riddick is supposedly 30 years old in this. Oh, I see. Okay. That makes more sense, I guess. It's a pretty bog standard type of prophecy, though. You know, it's always like, oh, this guy's going to kill you. That's always the prophecy. Right. right. I mean, the seer could have been like, oh, God, Furians are dicks. I'm going to, like, tell this guy this thing. So he goes and kills all of them. But, yeah, so that's the prophecy. It's definitely, I think, one of the weaker elements of the film. I don't think, with the like Chris said, I agree. We don't need a prophecy. None of this needs to be in here. But they felt they needed one, so it's here. We get to the prison planet of Crematorium. The planet is very hot and super bright. It's kind of the opposite of the planet in Pitch Black. So we're now we're entering back into Pitch Black territory with this yeah. you know, planet that has an an elemental an element to it that you know that's going to become a major problem no i love it it's a complete flip on pitch black the sun side is 700 degrees uh fahrenheit and then on the dark side it's negative 300 degrees um so there's like a perfect area of the transition of night to day where the weather is like tolerable by humans and this prison is run by a bunch of russians which you know sort of an interesting detail i guess we still have russians in space or whatever you know all of their the writing and stuff is in russian you know they have a rough approach into crematorium and then they've got to ride this rail cart down to the the slam because it's way underground because it's so hot one of the mercs is this kind of heavy set guy who's like i'm gonna take your goggles from riddick and then Riddick, you know, pulls a move with his boot that makes makes the guy like fly up off the sled and hit his head on something and die, basically. Well, and he was timing the when those little rails would come. So he knew exactly when to push up to make the guy hit it. So right. I'm like, that's cool. That's that's what, you know, you want to see in a movie like this is Riddick uses brains and be badass and just like take out everybody one by one. I believe that that Merc was the guy that got injected with liquid metal in X-Men 2. He's the guard that Magneto sucks the iron. Oh, right. He's a lot fatter in the in X2. It's very cool. I mean, because that guy is sitting on Riddick, and then Riddick, like, lifts up his chest just to give him enough height to get his head smashed. And then the other Merc, the Tombs turns around and is like, you know, four-way split, baby! Yeah, and like, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah that's good. See, you love tombs, Chris. So yeah, they get to the slam and they immediately like put Riddick on this rope for some reason. They tie his hands and <laughs> lower him on this big rope. So it can be like a nightclub and he can show off all his dance moves with the silk <laughs> rope. I think that's a very cool scene. I mean, they're basically... It is cool. It's it's just a little goofy. They're lowering him like meat because they know that the prisoners are going to like strip him for parts basically it's to make him helpless so he'll get his ass kicked by the prison you know it's like just you know start him off on a bad foot where he'll get his right. ass kicked basically but him being riddick he pulls the sweet gymnastic moves to get off the rope and i mean obviously this isn't um vin diesel doing this stuff because it's this pretty heavy duty sort of gymnastic moves but whoever they got was doing some pretty impressive shit. Well done, yeah. It's like a it's like a crazy Cirque du Soleil feat of strength with that that person's doing. Yeah, it's uh it's amazing. 
I'm sure they've had some help with wires, but it looks cool. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. It is. And it reminds me of that scene in Pitch Black where he, you know, pulls his arms out of his sockets to get out of the chains and stuff like that. I, I right, feel like this is, right. you know, version. This is what Riddick does, you know, and it's really cool because it's not a CG trick or may, if it is a CG trick, they remove some wires, but it's somebody actually doing it. So... This movie has a lot of CG, and then the best parts are where there's no CG. So it seems like maybe now that we're in pitch black territory, is this working a little bit better for you, Chris? Like this, the prison section? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Less less mythology, more Riddick doing Riddick things. Although I have to say that the... The prison just reminds me of Zion in The Matrix 2, and it's like they're they're pulling off all these, like... They're ripping off movies that I don't like, you know, and I'm like, oh, why why would you make it look like the Matrix 2 Zion or like use the bad crew in Alien 4 is all these other guys. It's just ugh. they're using the aesthetics that I don't appreciate. Let me just say that. So that pit prison like it, it shows up in, I believe. Kung Fu Panda, like later on, and then um, I think in Dark Knight Rises, he's in a mm. pit prison. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. it's just a thing. I'm fine with that. You guys don't like a good pit prison? Come on. It actually kind of reminded me of Guardians when they're in their prison and they have to sneak yeah. into that central right uh, room to escape. And oh, oh, exactly the the center room that looks like the spinning restaurant in Seattle. Right, which of of course came out after it, but I mean. You know, that's I'm trying scene, to but. think of if there was a precedent to this scene in another earlier sci-fi film. I mean, Alien Three is all in a prison. Yeah, film. right. But it doesn't have um a pit you know, or a central. Pit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is what. Yeah, maybe it is a pit. We can discuss about it later. So what's happening basically now is the Mercs are arguing with the Russians because they were expecting a big payday for Riddick, but the Russians are only going to give them 700k, and Tombs isn't happy about it. And meanwhile, Riddick has gotten himself off this rope, and now the prisoners are going to come and try to fuck him up. But Kira appears, or Jack, as she was formerly known, and she's got like a chain, and she sort of helps him out of the of the situation with a chain. And they have their sort of reunion, but there's some hard feelings going on. Yeah, can you explain what happened here? Because this is a big deal to me. Well, okay, so what she ends up saying is, not in this scene, but later on, she explains that she when he, when he left, because he, you know, he saved them in the, pitch, the movie Pitch Black. And by the way, she was played by a totally other actress in Pitch Black. Yes, right. They, yes. The actress playing her in this, uh, Alexis Davalos, is let's just say more more conventionally attractive attractive <laughs> which the the actress playing her in pitch black i mean first of all she was you know made to look like a boy yeah, yeah. she was hiding as a boy so she was supposed to be you know it wasn't supposed to be sexed up or anything right and this is only four years or later after the first movie so maybe she didn't age up enough i have i have no idea no that's what i'm ask i'm asking did they make a reason for the the recasting is it built into the story or is this just like the lamest thing they've ever done they explained it that they needed somebody who was more comfortable doing like the physical action stuff so no but i'm saying they're they didn't say like oh she got put into a new body in the movie they didn't explain it that way they're really just recasting yeah they're just saying she looks different now all right well this is this is the part of the movie where I literally wanted to walk out in the theater because I felt like it was 
totally shitting on the character of Jack from Pitch Black, who basically is, yeah, a sort of gender fluid, you know, tomboy. And that was such a cool thing. And then here they're just saying, nope, she's a hot babe now and is going to be totally different. And we're even going to call her a different name. So I don't get at all why this isn't just a different character because they just wanted to have some backstory. Like they could just have it be somebody else that, that had a beef with Riddick. I feel like this is a total, they're just pooping on this character that I loved in Pitch Black and, and connecting it for no, no good reason. And I literally wanted to walk out. This is where I start to hate the movie for doing, for what they did to this character. I didn't see it that way at all. Cause I saw it as her being under disguise as a boy for her own safety. And the name Jack was a like a an alias to protect her. Okay, that would be fine if it was the same actress. It just felt such Hollywood. Like let's get a hot girl in here, and and that's totally antithetical to what the Jack was in Pitch Black. I mean, who knows what the um, what uh, Rihanna Griffith was doing at the time? Maybe she couldn't be in the role. I mean, or maybe she didn't even want to be. Yeah, then don't put the. Don't put her in the movie then. You know, don't put the character in the movie. Then I don't think there's a reason for Riddick to get in prison again. The entire point is Jack, now Kira, she idolized Riddick and wanted to become him so much so that... That she became a hot girl? (laughs) No, that when she heard that Riddick got his shine eyes in prison, she went out to do the same thing and follow in his footsteps. Sure, I have no problem with that way of the story it's really just the recasting this is worse than casting scarlett johansson to me you know just recast i hate recasting of characters to begin with and i feel like this is just egregious i mean i want to say the line from iron man 2 by uh, don Cheadle, where he's like just deal with it you know because <laughs> it happened it, it, deal with it yeah i have problems with that too like alexa davalos she was in after this uh she was in andromeda in the 2010 clash of the titans yeah. Bring it back yeah. to the last podcast I was in. And then recently she was the um Man in the High Castle. Right. And then yep. the bartender in the first two episodes of season two of The Punisher on Netflix. So does nobody have an issue with this? Nobody else? I don't. I don't really because I don't have the same attachment to the character of Jack as you do. I mean, I'll concede that it does totally seem like they just tried to cast a more conventionally attractive actress because they're going for a different, but that's because they're going for a different thing. The character is serving a different purpose here. The character isn't meant to be seen as gender fluid in this situation, you know, so, and, and I think they're trying to make her more of a like love interest to Riddick, you know, so they want somebody who's got more of that type of chemistry in pitch black. She's playing like a child. So, you know, we're not supposed to be thinking of them on the same level, like there may be some kind of connection that goes deeper than just like a friendship, which I think is what they're trying to kind of sell here. Maybe that's not the way to go. That's a different question, though. That's not what we're talking about. You know what I mean? Like, is it creepy that Jake Lloyd had a crush on Natalie Portman? It's. (laughs) I mean, wouldn't you feel a little weird if they brought the same actress back from Pitch Black and they were trying to play it as more romantic? Wouldn't that feel weird? Yeah, I think that's a terrible decision. I don't think that, I think they should have respected the character you know you make a character you got to respect that character move when you move forward 
with a story. You know, you don't just like shove the character in to fit your story. You know, respect the character. And I feel like that's they're not respecting the character of Jack. I don't see, especially with the recasting. It's. It, I don't think it's um meant to be romantic at all. This is sort of like a daughter character like a mentee right. that's how it was in pitch black yeah um and i i, I don't think the characterization of her has changed i but feel the like they're kind of going there in this i think i know i know what you're saying for the most part it's played that way in this movie but i feel like there are moments when they kind of want to be like well you know could they be together like i feel i feel they're kind of pushing it in that direction honestly and i think that's why they cast somebody more conventionally attractive to play off Vin Diesel. The problem that I have with this whole setup with her is that when we find out, and this happens a little bit later, when we find out why she's mad at Riddick, it's because he took off because he knew he had bounty hunters coming from him. Mercenaries after him. And she went out off to look for him. He didn't tell her to do this. He like put her someplace safe, but then she decided she wanted to be a tough chick and went off looking for him. And she ended up falling in with these mercenaries who then sold her out to slavery. She says, which I'm taking yeah. to assume sex slavery. And like, she blames Riddick for this. Like yeah, he really didn't dumb. do any of this. And like, it's not his fault. You did this. You put yourself in this position. Yeah, the character is a total fail. Don't blame Riddick. He tried to protect you and you stupidly walked yourself into a terrible situation because you looked up to him, which is something he never wanted you to do. So, like, this is all on you, Kira. Like, when, when she finally reveals, like, this is why I'm mad at you, I'm like fuck off. Like, this is a terrible reason to be mad at him. They should have come up with some thing that he put her in, like a situation yeah. that she, he put her in and she couldn't get out of. So the reason they come up with is just lame. Yeah, he's an anti-hero to begin with. You could have him totally do something halfway shady and still accept it. I feel like you see this a lot in movies where they try to set up this conflict between characters, but they're not giving you a good enough reason. And you're like, I'm not... I'm not with you here. I'm not, you know, like <laughs> it reminds me of interstellar where it's like, Oh, your dad left to save the entire world. Like get over it. <laughs> That's a totally perfect example of what I'm talking about where you're, I'm not on Murph's side in that movie. No one is. Well, I think that's a, it's a constant running theme with the critic is that he's very sort of selfish, but has this like honor code and very opportunistic and just people are reading it the wrong way, uh, what his motivations are, and usually end up hating him or want him in jail. Like, I don't even know yeah. why he's a criminal in the first place. It's never really established. I'm sure it's like Snake Plissken, where it's like, you know, he doesn't actively go to, you know, harm people, but he'll definitely rob and steal and take the shortcut, but uh, nothing right. over the line. There's... A bunch of scenes where, you know, like Riddick's showering and he has this exchange with this bearded inmate about how they're stuck there forever. And this character is like, to Chris's point, is one of those characters where they're trying to set up a character that you care about, but you don't really care about this guy. And he's got like his wedding ring and he's like, I can't remember the name of my wife or whatever. But then later he's like, I really do remember her name. <laughs> it, to, to Chris's point, who cares? This guy is like a nothing. I've forgotten this character was even in the movie. And like I watched it today. I was like, oh, there's this guy. I forgot about him. You need the gov. You need... um. 
other people for the the chase just for body count really yeah they're body count characters he's a red shirt yeah he's 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 good he's not really memorable he's sort of like generic leader of the prisoners kind of he's sort of representing them there's a couple of other prisoners who we don't really get to know either but like to your point they end up being red shirts who die the guards unleash the panthers the spiky panthers. Why do they do that? Um, to feed them. Yeah, they say it's feeding time, and then you think that the prisoners are gonna get the food, but it's actually the guards are releasing these um these scaled panthers to just pick off the population. Is that what they do regularly, or is this like okay, we're we're, we're leaving the prison, and this is kind of like the doomsday bomb device? They're not leaving the prison at that point. Okay. No, they're just fucking with the prisoners. It would just seem random that they're just like, okay, okay. It's just to show that they're assholes who are fucking with the prisoners, willing to kill them just to be dicks. You know, but what happens here is everybody's trying to escape from the Panthers, like Kira's evading one, and they kill some of the inmates. But one of them comes up to Riddick and bonds with him because they both have the same sort of eyes. So we get this nice scene where Riddick is petting one of these uh, Spike Panthers. So that's nice. That was cool. This is um, it's it's sort of established in the at least in the director's cut that um, Riddick has a primal side and like an animal right. side, and this is sort of reinforcing that point. And then after that, there's a scene where Kira's get you know a bunch of the guards are basically getting rapey with Kira, getting handsy with her, and she puts up a good fight. So we see that you know she's toughened up and you know she's got like these spikes in her boots that she uses but they get the better of her and they get her pinned down and then riddick shows up and we get a an enjoyable scene where he explains that he's going to kill one of them with his teacup and he does just that he smashes the teacup down on a rock and then jams it into one of the dude's chests and kills him and then there's a funny moment where the other guys are like they're they're clearly scared they don't know what to do, but they're still going to tr- fuck with him. And then he just picks up like a can opener key from like a tin or whatever and holds it on them like, I'll use this next to kill you. And they run off. Um, Yeah, the I believe the guards say they need to flush some fresh air into the complex. And that's when I guess Riddick figures out that there is a way to get out of the prison up top. Their like guard station or whatever can elevate all the way up to the surface. So Riddick sees that as his opportunity to escape. I want to go back to the just the concept of the future and um, nationality. Like that far into the future, you think that it would sort of just fade away or become this like one race one people like that far in the future i don't think that at all really i think people are gonna hold on to this shit forever no i get what you're saying if russia doesn't exist anymore then why should there be russians they would be something else i took it that it did exist in some form and people were just like now we're russians in space just the way people come here and they're like well now we're from where we are but here in america you know that's the way humans are they don't just give up these things they hold on to them forever i get what you're saying but i think that's realistic i think even if we did go into space people would still be identifying as their cultures forever yeah but i don't think i think it would evolve into something else not so specific i i know what you're saying steve that it feels too 
of what you know of our time and that like if they held on to it it would still be evolved somewhat and something different well anyway lots of stuff happens very quickly um the the mercenaries are sort of getting into an argument with the guards and like one of them and i'm not clear who is like loading bullets slowly in their gun while they're having this conversation and then it breaks out into a fight and tombs to escape the gunfire drops down with the rope into the prison level. I mean, that's when Riddick makes his move. And Riddick jumps on the rope and he's, you know, says to Tombs, you should have taken the money Tombs, which he said earlier and basically just leaves Tombs hanging there and climbs up the rope. You know, I'm going to Rodney pick right now because why couldn't the guy just hold out his leg and then, kick Vindy's like if someone's jumping at you while you're hung, hanging onto a rope all you have to do is just put your foot out and no it was it was so fast and uh, Riddick Riddick jumps above him and lands sort of on top uh, of him okay it seemed a little a little convenient that the guy just stood there and didn't do a thing it was just like uh, he's coming like all you gotta do is just like move a little bit and Vin Diesel will be dead I didn't think about it <laughs> But yeah, he climbs, he gets to the top, and then um, he releases all the doors so that the prisoners are free from their cages, I guess. Or or can access the upper level with him um, so that Kira can join him. Yeah, and he learns that the necromongers are coming, uh, so he knows they got to get out of there. But he also realizes that the guards have, like, ruined the sled, so no one can take the sled. And they've run off, like, down this corridor, and they took all the money with them. And, you know, because right. that's what Riddick was going to do, too, he said. <laughs> He's like, because yeah, that was my plan. Let's, yeah, let's roll it back. Because the reasons why they get into a fight in the first place, the mercenaries and uh, the guards, is because they see that the necromancers are coming. And Tombs says, like, yeah, we weren't followed by them. And then the guards are like, what do you mean them? And then they get into the fight. And then a rocket gets launched and probably is the thing that destroyed the skiff. It is, yeah. And that's when the stuff goes down so then we get our big sort of call back to pitch black scene where after tombs gets left in the panther cages riddick and the heroes realize that they're going to have to run the surface basically to get to the merc ship that is down in these volcano fields when they come in on the the skiff to the prison when riddick gets off he's already calculated the distance um, of how long it took them to get there, which right. is part of him. 14.5 kilometers. Right, or something like that. So, yeah, they've got to, um, you know, outrun the sun, basically, to get to their to the ship. And Riddick tells them, there's going to be one speed, mine. Did you like that line, Chris? Yeah, that worked for me. I liked it. I love the flip on Pitch Black, where this is like the sun coming is going to totally kill them, as opposed to the night coming and the creatures. The landscape on this planet looks like um, LV-426, the the planet right. from Alien. It looks like a set, but I like it. Like, you know, it's very clearly they built a set somewhere and they're running over these, you know, like you said, very aliens-like sets, but I just like it. I like to see sci-fi characters running over cool sets, so I'm not complaining. It's a cool concept, but, you know, like... It, you just pointed out that you can so clearly tell it's a set and, you know, it, it again, to bring it back to pitch black, you know, just the fact that they were on location filming in a real desert. I felt like 
you know, gives that a lot of, you know, grounding and it's just not apparent here. And the tension for me isn't working nearly as well as Pitch Black. It's just too much green screen fantasy stuff for me. Fair enough. Yeah, you could tell it was a set, but I didn't really care. It's them trying to beat the clock sort of like in Pitch Black. And they're adding layers to it because the guards can sort of access the surface from these like checkpoints so that they're shooting at them you know so we get some fighting as they're going at one point riddick grabs this like rope thing and smashing smashes one of the guards with it there's there's cool ideas here it's cool we get some cool shots of fighting and like it starts to rain ash because there's this big ash cloud coming i liked that for the atmosphere I totally thought it was snow at one point, but then on the second viewing, I was like, oh, no, no, that's volcanic ash. <laughs> but there's one goofy kind of moment is, you know, Kira's, you know, fighting these guards and stuff, and Riddick sort of admonishes her for being reckless. And he's like, don't you care if you die or whatever? And she's like, I don't care or whatever. And he's like, well, I care. Then they climb up to these cliff caves because the sun is coming and they've got to sort of hide in these cliff caves. And Kira gets trapped in one and she's like, remember when I said that I didn't care if I died? And I'm like, yeah, I remember. It was like literally like three minutes ago. Like (laughs) if you're going to have that line, you need to have it like when they first meet and then have it here. It's like, yeah, I remember you just said it like it was it was literally less than five minutes. And like, remember when I said that, you you know, I was kidding. Right. As if like anybody isn't kidding when they say that. I mean, come on. Like. It's a really bad callback. He has one of the guys give him this rope and he swings out into the sun, which is like 700 degrees. He says, you know, give me a rope. And the guy's like, what? Like, why? And then the guy's like, just give me the rope. And then he covers himself with all the water they brought so that he can at least temporarily get through the the searing hot heat of the sun um and then he swings over to grab kira and the other guy that's down there with her like pops his head out and like immediately gets like turned to like fiery dust it's a little bit of a stretch for sure like why like oh so some water is keeping him from bursting into flames well one other dude just looks up and he's now been immolated diesel burns at a different temperature (laughs) is that a quote from him no it should be (laughs) it should be when he like gets back with kira like he's his body is literally smoking yeah that was cool water burning off of it so they reach the hangar that they're trying to get to but the necromongers have shown up and vodka and the purifier is there waiting for them luckily like riddick tells kira to wait to attack them because he basically knows that the the guards are gonna show up and they're gonna start fighting with them first so good plan hold back wait for the other group of people to get in a fight first and thin out the herd we get a pretty cool fight scene here i feel like this is the best fight scene in the movie because we've got riddick using his like cool curved daggers that they used they showed a lot in the promotional materials and the necromongers have these like impact guns or something that like blows people backwards we're getting a lot of like characters sort of jumping around and pulling some far out moves there's wire work and stuff going on which was the thing to do at the time especially it's got that kind of heightened reality almost superhero fight kind of feel 
but I, I'm enjoying it. I also can accept that, you know, they're on another planet. So maybe gravity is a little different. You know, people can jump higher, get blasted back farther, whatever. It, it's working for me, this scene. I like this fight. Yeah, that kind of gun is a lot like the wind-up guns from from Minority Report. Yeah, where it's like oh, a yeah, sound totally. wave that gets shot out. Yeah, It's a lot better than the, the fight where he puts out the candles in the beginning. It doesn't let you breathe in the action. It's just a different take on fighting. I feel it's, it is the set piece big fight, but you're also rushing through it because they literally have like three minutes before the, the shadow of the mountain is gone and everything on the flight path will be completely burnt to shreds. Riddick says like, oh, what's that game? Like, who's the better killer? And there's a let's play and that's when the, the fight starts. That's all cool. And then the, the Gov tries to prevent Vako from shooting Riddick or something and then Vako like grabs him over his head and like breaks his spine on his knee and the Gov's dead at that point. But then in the director's cut it does... This crazy stuff, um, which is not in the theatrical cut. Do you want to? Oh God, it's so bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Vako blasts Riddick and he kills all the inmates and he's going to shoot Riddick. And in the director's cut, Riddick then has this vision of the Furian priestess or whatever she is. She tells him that the Lord Marshal was the one who killed his people. Basically, it causes him to have this energy blast that em- emits from the marking on his chest that she left or whatever that, you know, blows Vako back. And I guess is the reason why he doesn't just kill Riddick now. That blast knocks out all the soldiers that were coming in to kill him. And so Vako at that point leaves and then um, Kira thinking that Riddick is dead, decides to also run for the necromancer ship. And at that point, the, um, the purifier grabs you know the unconscious body of riddick and drags him out of the the sunlight um into the hangar it's definitely not very clear as to why vako is just not killing riddick how does it play out in the theatrical i i think it's because the sun is coming down so hot that vako right. can't go can't reach to riddick's him. body yeah. that's my reasoning behind it but it's all yeah you're right it's it's crazy he could have killed him right there at this point, I'm totally checked out anyway. I'm just waiting for the movie to end. You know, so after the Necroses take off without uh, killing Riddick, we get a scene between uh, the Purifier and Riddick where basically the Purifier gives him a bargain from the Lord Marshal that if he stays away, he won't be hunted. And we learn the Purifier is a Furian. He reveals that he has the mark on him as well. And he's like, well, the Lord Marshal doesn't want you to go after him, but I think you should because I'm a Furian. Then the Purifier walks off into the boiling sun, killing himself, allowing Riddick to take the Merc ship and take off. It's a pretty great scene. I mean, Lane Gross delivers the lines very well um and also like because he's a furian and they're super tough like it takes him a while to go down uh, when he walks yeah. in the sun he's like actively his 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 body stays up pretty much for a pretty long time before it collapses yeah that was cool and that explains why riddick can endure it so riddick takes the merc ship back to helium prime uh vako is getting a promotion for quote unquote killing riddick even though he didn't yeah, he says, like, I've lost a purifier, but I've gained a first among commanders. 
And then um, Vaco says, like, obedience without question and loyalty till underverse come, which I guess is some religious saying they have. Dame Vaco is happy about it. She wants Vaco to follow through and kill the Lord Marshal. Uh, the Lord Marshal consults with Judy Dench to see if Riddick is really dead. And she is pretty cagey about it and tells him he's going to reach the underverse soon, which seems like an obvious, like, yeah, he's still alive and he's going to kill you. But I guess the, the Lord Marshal doesn't take it that way. And he orders his armada to leave Helium Prime, which means, you know, all the ships are going to leave and they're going to do... Once they're up in the atmosphere or whatever, they're going to do their final thing where they basically kill all the life. Right. On the planet. That that scene in the beginning where the the necromancer that's dying, surrounded by like he takes the staff and puts it to the ground. That's foreshadowing. It's the yes. same way on a larger scale that the that the necromancers destroy planets. Right. Um, is that orb in the sky that spreads out and does like cascade of destruction on the planet. yeah they showed that at the beginning right like i feel like they show the the planet being yeah they they do show that in the um they call it the final protocol the final order <laughs> but riddick has found his way back to helium prime and is disguised as a necromonger uh dame vaco senses him sort of moving through the crowds he does that creepy thing where he you know lightly touches someone Oh, he does that in a later movie. But, like, she's, like, freaked out. Like, you know, who dares, you know, touch the great Dan Vaco and goes looking for him. And then, and yeah, and then sees him in the crowd because of his eyes. She sees it. Yeah, his eyes in the helmet. But she's kind of excited about this because she thinks that Riddick's interference will assist Vaco in his attempts to kill the Lord Marshal. But the timing must be flawless, as she puts it. One of the lensers figures out that Riddick is not a necromonger soldier, and so Riddick kills it, and the recording that the lenser makes is then seen by uh, the Lord Marshal, so he knows that Riddick is alive and is here. It turns out Riddick is hiding on one of the quasi-dead again. It's like his move to hide on one of their, their coffins. So as the necromongers are searching around for him, he's just kind of hanging out on top of one of these oracle witches. And so we get our big climax. Basically, Riddick just attacks the Lord Marshal in the throne room, but he's deflected away. He sees that Kira has been converted into a necromonger. The Lord Marshal sort of like, I've got your friend here. Riddick throws his blade at the Lord Marshal and it cuts him. And the Lord Marshal's like, I haven't felt a bleeding in a long time. And then they have their big sort of one-on-one -on -one fight. You know, because Riddick thinks Kira's turned, and he's like, he doesn't believe it. He's like, you know, Kira, are you with me? Are you with me, yeah. Kira? And then he says under his breath to the Lord Marshal, like, killed everything I know. And that's when he throws a dagger. And then um, it's a teleporting fight where Riddick can't get really a punch in. Although he does, he starts catching on, but not quick enough. And I really love this effect of the warping, the the after image that the Lord Marshal has. I 
Don't think I've seen it since. Think yeah, it was it pretty be cool. It's more. Um, sure. I don't know what context. So. It's reminiscent it's a little bit of the T-1000 kind of effect, you know, but it's a different type of thing because, you know, I think we're supposed to be seeing his soul, like the, his soul can move around and then right. sort of bring his body to a new location because it's already gone there. You know, this other form of him is moving quicker than Riddick can can reach him. There's a there's this scene um, that the, it's actually foreshadowed in early in the movie. They always have a down angle of this room, and there's mm-hmm. a giant statue with a. It looks like an ear pick that this guy's holding. This giant statue had has near its ear, and Lord Marshall finally at the end, and you've seen it so many like at least two times before in the movie. He jumps up and grabs the ear pick. And comes down, uses a weapon to fight Riddick, and at that point has him in a headlock. Yeah, so we're we're pretty much sure that Riddick is gonna die here for sure. Like this is it. This is the end for Riddick. But Kira intervenes. She is still with him, even though she said she wasn't and was gonna try to convince him to go join the Necromongers. She is still with him. She, I don't know, hits the Lord Marshal with some kind of spear or something. Yeah, she right? stabs him in the back, and then the Lord Marshal um, hits her, and she goes flying into a, a pillar with spikes on it. Yeah, she hits a spike, so that's not looking good for Kira. Then Dame Vako lets Vako know that this is his moment to shine, so Vako goes into the kill with this big sort of polearm axe thing he's got. The Lord Marshal's been stabbed in the side with the spear or whatever, and he's asking Vako for help, but Vako's coming at him with the thing, and he's like, oh no, Vako. So Vako raises the thing, and I love this. I think this is a great way to wrap this fight up, because the Lord Marshal does his thing where he's soul transporting or whatever but he goes right to where riddick is and riddick's got the knife and riddick just plants it right in his head and then the lord marshal's body teleports to where riddick is killing him and vako misses him so his axe thing hits the the stone floor hitting nothing and then riddick snaps the knife off in the lord marshal's head which is cool and then Dame Vako's like, no, or whatever, like, because she right, right before it was going to happen, right when she thinks Vako's going to do it, right when she thinks Vako's going to succeed, she's like, flawless. Flawless. <laughs> yeah. No, she, he turns around. And I know. It, it's, so, it's so perfectly corny and cheesy as hell. I love it. I love this. I, and I think this is why the movie ends up working for me because this moment works for me so much. I'm like, yes, sure, it's sure. just a badass yeah. end moment. And right. then Riddick goes to Kira and she dies in his arms. You know, all's forgiven, I guess. But then, you know, the movie ends with Riddick sort of slumping in the throne and all the necromongers bow to him because he gets to keep what you kill and he is declared the rulers of the Necromongers in a very Conan-like moment. Very, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I feel it should have ended when he's holding Kira and she says, like, you know, I was always with you. And then he slumps over. Like, then that moment is ruined by Vako saying, you know, you keep what you kill and everyone bowing to him. And then, at least in the theatrical cut, then Judy Dench has a line. And you're like, 
if it had just ended with him slumped in the throne, it's already understood that he keeps what he kills. They don't need to say it again. No, I think they I need don't to, mind that they say. Yeah, they need to send that thing home so that the people who weren't paying attention, like me, get it. <laughs> I feel like, and the it's a cooler ending that you know it's not about at this point. It's not really about his relationship with Kira. I feel like the the, the more interesting thing is he's the ruler of the necromancers now, and so right. it's it's a much cooler way to end it. I think. I even remember seeing that in the theater and being taken aback that oh that was a bold choice for the end there that's very cool now that we can talk about the 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 end it's a great movement moment to end but then you're kind of like oh what's next and no the Mm -hmm. the final fight is it's amazing it's it's so much cooler than the thing they do now like in game of thrones and i think they it kind of also happened in the last jedi I think it almost happens in Black Panther. I'm not sure, but like where the hero drops right. the weapon that yes. they're going to use and then yeah. uses the other hand That's to shove it in. But this yeah. is like way cooler in like so many ways. I love it. I feel like this isn't a ripoff. This is this is its own unique thing. I, if the movie right. had been this good the whole time, I would have maybe been on board if they had cut you know, 50% of the mythology and left room in my brain for just this cool action. If it had been a tight 90 minutes, I feel this movie could have worked better. And because there, there are moments like this that are good. I just think there's too much fodder in the rest of the movie. I love the, this final fight. It almost, for me, it's enough with the prison scene to be like, okay, none of the beginning stuff with the religious stuff even mattered. It was just setting it up. And I think my only problem with the beginning of the movie is that they killed Keith David. And I'm just like, it's sort of like Alien 3. It's like, you killed Hicks and Newt? Um, I'm the guy that loves that they killed Hicks and Newt. So No, and I, I accept it. I've, I've come to accept these things, these massive changes. And which is why I can say, you know, I can agree with you, Sebastian. Yeah. Yes, go big or go home. We got the money. And then the result happened, and that's why we're talking about it. Yep. So the budget to this thing was $105 million, which for 2004 was a huge budget. And it only grossed $57 million domestic. It ended up clearing its budget 115 worldwide, which, I mean, is okay, but it's still a huge bomb. But it surprisingly got a sequel, and it got a sequel because Vin Diesel made it get, have a sequel. He basically like, him. yeah, he basically was like, I'll do another Fast and Furious if you do another Riddick. Riddick 3 is at a significantly smaller budget, which is which is Way much smaller. better. Yes, yeah. right. it's responsible. Right. Whereas this, this was just a huge swing and a huge miss as far as I'm concerned. There was a tweet or something, I think on Instagram, Diesel announced that, Tui had given him the script for the fourth Riddick movie. So I'm sort of like, when are you going to find the time between the Fast and Furious series to do this other Riddick, the next Riddick film, uh, which is called Furia? Well, they're going to have to call it something else because Furiosa is coming out too, and that's huh. going to be confusing. Oh, it's yeah. Furia and wow. Furiosa. Is that a prequel or like a sequel? Yeah, it's a prequel. 
Well, okay, now le- just let me make my final defense here and we will call it a podcast, okay? Um, <laughs> the reason I think why I have affection for this movie, aside from there are things that I really enjoy about it, like I love Vin Diesel's character and I love some of the moments here. I think I've been pretty honest about the things I think are pretty bad. But what I really appreciate about this movie is that it swings so big and that it's something that these two guys came up with on their own. It didn't come from an established franchise. It didn't come from a comic book. It didn't come from anything but their imagination. And I always want to support stories like that. I always want to see people take a stab at making new mythologies and not being hemmed in by billion dollar IPs. So like, I just am happy it exists. I'm happy that they took such a big swing and went so out there with this idea. I think it would have been an easy thing to just make another type of pitch black movie and just try to do what they did again. That's what I think the third movie is for a lot of it, which Mm -hmm. while I do enjoy the third movie, I think that's works in its detriment like there are parts of that movie that are too pitch black where it's like you know you're just doing pitch black but not as good you know so i don't know i'd rather have this than that i appreciate somebody trying to make a new sci-fi mythology space opera movie and swing for the fences and we don't see that shit anymore nobody gets to do that anymore i mean jupiter sending was probably the last time somebody tried and We'll probably never see it again. It's fucking Star Wars forever. Yeah, yeah. Right, or Valerian. It's either Star Wars or Star Trek forever. That's all you're ever going to get in this genre. Avatar. (laughs) I'm shocked, Chris, that having listened to the podcast for a while, that you did not mention that Vin Diesel is in avatars two and three what what i didn't know this you didn't i didn't know, know this either no oh i'm talking to bring it up okay well oh sebastian you're gonna have to love it hey look if avatar 2 is good i'll like it i'm not going in knives drawn but, see honestly. i i also have affection for avatar for the same reason because it's not you right. know an established ip it's straight from the imagination of James Cameron, and to me, works a little bit better than this, you know, arguably that none, those movies have huge problems. But just admiring some the effort doesn't make me want to love the movie. I'm glad that you appreciate it. I just think that, you know, Pitch Black was so successful because it was a simple, effective story. This is a complex, ineffective story to me, and it kind of angers me that they spent so much money and just I feel like they could have put this money in another movie that 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 I liked more. I'm glad that they got the other Pitch Black, the Riddick 3 to come out because that is a victory and I remember liking that a lot more than this. I'm happy this exists for you Sebastian and that they were able to take their big swing at the fences, but I wish they had chosen a different template rather than Lord of the Rings. Like, I th- I think if you're going to add, you know, Alien added Rambo and became Aliens, let's say. Mm-hmm. They yeah. took Pitch Black and added Lord of the Rings and got this. I don't think that was the right formula. They should have added some another genre or something else because it just didn't work for me. I get it. I get what you're saying, but I just love that this movie exists. <laughs> $105 million well spent, in my opinion. 
I want to see someone do Thandy and Carl Irvin for uh, for Halloween as a couple costume someday. That'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, that'll never happen. That's a deep cut. Yeah, everyone's like, who are you guys supposed to I be? I would appreciate it. <laughs> Sebastian, you could do it. Like, I got to get Carl Urban's hairdo in that. Yeah, it's, it's like the hip like haircut like look. a few years ago. Yeah, and a little goth makeup. All right, guys. Well, I'm going to go uh, kill somebody with a teacup and bust out of a slam and learn the secrets of the underverse. Yeah, and you keep what you kill. Awesome. That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon.